got that whole thing set up like a radio studio. Yeah, man. This is where I hold myself up when uh, my son is driving me up the wall. How old is your boy? <laughs> He's six. Oh, man. Cherish every day. I am. I am. Especially right now, man. You know, I have lots of time. So Yeah, man. You blink and it goes. I'm telling you, mine uh, just turned 18 in September. My daughter is turning 21 in January. And it was only about a month ago that they were your kid's age. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I remember uh, your kids being really, really small. Let's see. I took a lesson with you at your house, like probably close to like 18 years ago or something like that. Yeah, out it, in Pacific Palisades? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, me and a friend of mine, wow. uh, we drove down to your <laughs> to your place. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Did I say anything worthwhile? You did. <laughs> Actually, um, that lesson changed the way that I warm up uh, for good, too, because I used to be one of those people who felt like I needed to warm up for like, I don't know, like an hour before I was ready to play. You told me at that lesson, you were like, you you need to cut your warm up down because you need to make sure that you don't have to rely on an hour warm up. You don't always get an hour before you're about to play. And then you proceeded to like pick up your horn. You're like, see, I haven't played today yet. And then you played like summer night's dream or something like that. And it was beautiful. Oh man. Oh gosh. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I always get like really frightened when somebody says, yeah, I took a lesson with you a long time ago. Cause I'm thinking, Oh no, I, I, I absolutely had to have said something stupid, you know, <laughs> but but uh, you know, it's I'm I'm glad I'm glad what for whatever sort of case it it helped and certainly you know based on what you've accomplished since then man you know what little I had to offer just just added into what you were already doing I mean I'm so thrilled with what you're doing and and like the road you're going down and and you know you're doing some terrific stuff I really appreciate that I've been lucky in in getting to do what I love to do but I've also a little bit like you not quite as prolific as you because you've well not even close to as prolific as you because you've done so many different things i pride myself a little bit on not being just cornered into being one type of player like a classical player or right. but man you you've done everything pretty much i mean orchestral playing solo playing chamber music jazz studio recording teacher i mean it's like there isn't really much that you haven't touched musically and the, the the most amazing part is that it's not like a um what's that saying like a jack of all jack trades, of all master, trades of none. master of none yeah exactly it's not that with you it's like you're freaking amazing at all of them <laughs> so it's like what, what the heck man so i really i really dig that before we get too far into you and your career and everything i wanted to uh, welcome everybody to Music on the Rocks with me, Chris Castellanos, and this is where I interview people that I admire and people who are my friends, and we have some fun conversation over some beverages. What do you uh, What do you have tonight, Chris? I have some Woodford Reserve. I'm just pretending that I'm traveling. That's usually what I end up drinking on the airplane. <laughs> some Woodford. Most excellent. A yeah, choice. A fine choice. I will pour a little bit of that right now. And uh, what do you have? I have a lovely uh, 2018 Turley Vineyards uh, Uberoff Zinfandel. Awesome. So I'm, I'm doing some serious work. I'm a wine collector, so this is kind of my thing. So oh, you're a collector. Awesome, man. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Here's to you. Have you ever tried their double oaked? Uh, yeah, I have. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Really good. That's some, that's some serious stuff. 
Yeah. Yeah. I love a good Woodford. I don't know. I just like to have a good time. So, yep. Well, that's cool. So you are a wine collector. Uh, how many bottles do you have? Well, I have a lot less than I used to because I'm drinking more than I'm buying. Um, <laughs> you know, the COVID will actually do that to you. Um, I've got, I don't know, probably 250, 300 bottles. It's a very small collection compared to a lot of people. And it's a lesson I used to have, but, um, it's just something that's been just a passion of mine for years and years and years and years and years and years. Yeah. I have a good friend, Tom Leslie, and he's a wine collector also. And he's always, you know, trying to teach me about the bouquet and, and what you would pair with what, and, and this is why this is great and everything. And I can tell like when it's good, but I guess my palate is, is not as sophisticated as it needs to be. <laughs> Nobody's is at first. It's like anything else. It's like practicing the horn, you know, you're, you're good to a certain point, And the more you practice, the more things you become aware of. And it's the same with, it's the same with learning about wine. Really the, 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 the similarities are quite remarkable. Yeah, man. Yeah, Cause you can get a, you can get a really good buzz from playing the horn for a good long time and like really be happy about what you're doing. It's kind of like wine. That's true. That's <laughs> actually, that's really true. Yeah, man. And it takes you away to a different place. Indeed. <laughs> well, I just wanted to start off with one of the CDs that got me playing different styles. I had a horn teacher. He was my very first teacher. His name is Ed Jackson. He was actually from, from uh, California. Yes, Long Beach. Yeah, yeah. And he's a great player. And I was a sophomore in high school. And I remember he hipped me to your album, Richter Scale. And uh, he put it on and the first track came on, which has got a match. And I freaked out. I'd never heard anything like that before. Uh, you know, I'm in high school. I heard all the, all the classical stuff. And I was a geek as like a horn geek. I, I listened to all kinds of horn players and I had favorites and everything, but I never heard anybody do anything like that on the horn. And that really was a direction changer for me. It was like a game changer because I was like, dude, it, a horn can do that. So then I wanted to, I wanted to try. I asked if I could be in a jazz band and I auditioned for that. And it got me started on, on another path and really opened up my ears as a horn player, because I think a lot of horn players don't realize how much like improvising really improves your ears. And of course, the better your ears are, the better musician you are. So uh, yeah, that was, I mean, that was an amazing thing for me. How, how old were you when you recorded Richter scale? Um, I have to think about this for a second. Um, that was my second record. My first one was, I, I suppose I need to back up a little bit because um, that record was produced by Gunther Schuler, as was, I mean, he, he produced about four or five records for me. And the first record that he produced was an LP called New Ideas, um, which is out of print. Um, side one is classical, side two is jazz. And that was his idea to want to do that because he knew me well enough for my year, my time with him at Tanglewood. And, you know, we were good friends, dear friends up until, you know, when he died. I think my first record, New Ideas, I think I was about 28 when that came out. And um, I think I was probably 35, maybe, when... Richter scale came out. I didn't do that many records. I, you know, it's, I wasn't one of those guys that put out a record every other year. So on, you know, they're vanity records and you never make any money on them anyway. Right. So, so it's kind of one of those things where I, I wanted to kind of buy my time and really find the right material and 
you know, tr just try to find the time in my schedule, et cetera. So uh, it was about 35 or 36, something like that. Yeah. I was just curious because you started off your career playing professionally so young. I mean, one of your first jobs was with the Utah Symphony, right? Right. Yeah. I was 21 years old. 21. Yeah. So, I mean, were you, were you still in school at the time? No, or I had just graduated. And here's the funny thing. I had just graduated. I'd gotten my bachelor's degree from USC where I had studied with Wally Linder and Vince Rosa. Mm -hmm. And um, I was at Tanglewood that summer, which is where my relationship with Gunther Schuller began because he was the head of the Berkshire Music Institute, which was the, the student, if you will, um, arm of Tanglewood. And um, I was a student. I had no idea what I was going to do. And two or three weeks into my summer at Tanglewood, I got a phone call from Maurice Abravanel, who was the yeah. original music director of the Utah Symphony. And he called me and he had gotten to know my playing from the summer before, where he was the music director at the Music Academy of the West and I was a student there. And he liked what I did. And I guess he, I, I got a phone call from him at Tanglewood asking, telling me, informing me that basically they finally had the budget in the Utah Symphony Orchestra to actually hire a fifth horn as a contract player. And, you know, would I be interested? It would be assistant, basically, but also moving down to third if the associate, Ed Allen, would move up to first when Don Peterson, their wonderful principal horn forever, wanted to lay out of a piece. So, you know, they offered me the job just outright. Wow. And so I just said, yeah, yeah, it was the 70s. So things like that were still happening. Yeah, yeah, that's so cool. Marisa Bravenel, actually, I mean, Bravenel Hall is where the symphony plays. So it's a, the hall is named after him. And uh, the orchestra, well, a couple of years ago, just did a, a Mahler cycle because apparently Mahler was one of Bravenel's favorite composers. Well, yes, I, I can tell you that, um, you know, when you think of, of uh, complete Mahler symphony recording cycles uh, and who was the first one, a, a lot of people think that Leonard Bernstein in the New York Philharmonic was the first orchestra to record all nine Mahlers. I don't think so. I think it was the Utah Symphony. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. That's awesome, man. So you were in Utah. How long were you in Utah? One season. Okay. Did you win another job? No, I actually quit. <laughs> I quit. I quit Utah after a year, not because I didn't like my job there. I, I just kind of felt like I needed, I felt like I needed more time with Mr. DeRosa. And um, I felt like my journey in terms of what I needed to learn wasn't over with yet. And as, as wonderful as an experience that I had in Utah, I would never say, a harsh word against anybody in that orchestra or anybody in the organization or that orchestra in general. I had the greatest time with them for a year. They were, they were so open and welcoming and supportive, but I felt like I needed to do something more than basically play 2d passages, whole notes, you know what an assistant job is like. Right. So I, I left to go back to USC and get a master's not really knowing of anything other than I got to have more time with DeRosa. And that actually never came about because at the, during the summer, before I went back to school, I got a phone call from uh, a conductor by the name of Leonard Slatkin, who at the time was a conductor of the New Orleans Symphony. That was his first gig. 
Mm. And the funny thing is he gives me a call and he says, our principal horn player just quit on us and we need somebody to start the season. And um, we can offer you, you know, travel and we can put you up. So you won't have any expenses like that. Um, and when it comes time to the audition will be, this was like in, in late August, you just come down here in late August. The audition will be in November and we'll stick you in the final round. But then he said something to me, which was really fascinating. He said, I don't know how you play, but your teacher says you're very good. <laughs> and the connection there is through Hollywood because Leonard's parents, Leonard's father, Felix Slacken, was a concert master of the 20th Century Fox Symphony Orchestra. Oh. And he was also he was also the concert master of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra and I think also music director of the Hollywood Bowl Orchestra. Leonard's mother, Eleanor, was principal cello at 20th Century Fox. And of course Vince was uh he he was in the section of 20th Century Fox when Al Brain was playing there and then after Al Brain retired Vince took over. Mhm. As well as already being like the top freelancer in Los Angeles. So I, I have absolutely no doubt that it was the game of telephone between Slack and his mother and Vince. Mm. And that's, I think, where that came about. Oh, that's so interesting, man. So at 22 years old, all of a sudden I'm principal in New Orleans. <laughs> that's great. How was it studying with Vince? Were you pretty close with him? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I became really close with him over the years. Right. Uh, you know, I was a student like anybody else. And, and you know, I, I studied with him as a student undergrad for one year. Um, but my education with him basically went on throughout the rest of his playing career once I kind of came back to L.A. His, his concept was the most I, – I remember my first lesson with him. He basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, pretty much what you need to know about the horn, you're going to hear in this lesson. <laughs> and it took me a long time to understand what he was talking about, but it was about the simplicity of it, understanding what really the basics were. And he basically taught me everything that I'd learned before with Wally Linder, who was my teacher before that, who was principal horn in the Minneapolis Orchestra <laughs> for 20 years in Minneapolis. I say that purposefully because he was there in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, retired in the early 60s to come out to LA before it became the Minnesota Orchestra. And everything I learned from Wally was amazing stuff, but what Vince did was he, he helped me fill the gaps by really dealing with the one element of my playing that I had not dealt with at all. And to this day, I believe very few people actually deal with in terms of where the tiered elements of learning how to play the instrument are. And that was air development. It wasn't just putting air into the instrument. It was developing the quality of the air and learning how to breathe and all of those things, which basically is the underpinning of everything else that we do. Right. And so he would give us these exercises. I mean, it's all spelled out in this book called Carved in Stone that's written by Todd Miller. Right. And it's basically, it's the life, career, and teaching and playing philosophies of DeRosa. And there's exercises in there. And I can tell you, man, Chris, there were these exercises that he would give all of his students. And you can always tell when a DeRosa student was practicing because we were playing these exercises. And I'm telling you, we would play them daily 
every day, every day. And you could tell because we were all like scratching our heads, trying to figure out why nothing was getting better. <laughs> but what was really happening was we were really developing the air. And that's the one part of our playing that we can't quantify from a, from a place of being able to see on the page in front of us, if we're working on an attitude, if we're working on something that looks out of stress or whatever it is, we can quantify when we're getting better at something. Right. You know, we're working on it, we're honing it in and so on and so forth. It's really hard to quantify what the concept of air development is because it's really more along the lines of actually like planting an acorn in the ground and watching it turn into a tree. You know, those practicing those exercises and being aware of how we're breathing, being aware of producing what DeRosa would call a column of air into the instrument were things that, you know, if you did it every day, eventually what you would notice was things weren't quite as difficult in some places as they used to be. Right. And at that point, you'd embedded it all. So that's like if you're standing there trying to watch the acorn turn into a tree, forget it. <laughs> yes, yeah. But you come back a month later, and all of a sudden, you're starting to see shoots come out of the ground. And that's a whole different ballgame, man. And then that turns into a freaking tree that you can't push over. Yeah, yeah. Wow, man. So that was really, out of everything I got from Vince, I think that was the thing that really stuck to it because it enhanced and made everything better that I already did. That allowed my air to be such where when I'm playing Got a Match, I could make it work. Yeah, interesting. I was just blown through the horn. Right, right. That's something that students don't really uh, fully appreciate until they're older. You know, those kind of lessons. Uh, it's sometimes at the time, it's like, what am I doing? Why? Because you you want stuff to happen now. You want to see results now. Uh, but yeah, that, that analogy about uh, just sitting there staring at an acorn. <laughs> yeah, of course, you're going to think nothing's happening, but there's something happening. Eventually, what you're building is that foundation that's unshakable. Yeah, yeah. That's what I, that's really the basic thing that I learned from him at the time I was in school. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I learned from him was that he trusted his students at least, you know, the ones that he knew would make really good decisions. He always trusted me with like the repertoire choices that I made. And, um, you know, he taught me how to listen to a score or something if I was working on an excerpt. And that was, of course, you know, times 10 with Schuler when we would study excerpts together. But what, you know, Vince really, what the rest of the education I got from Vince was actually I was getting paid to do it. Because when I moved back to Los Angeles, I started doing studio jobs. And every once in a while, when I first got started, I was able to sit in with the big boys and just listening to them and how they breathed and how they played together. How they, uh, that, was, that was the greatest education I could have ever gotten because what I learned was focus. Yes. Yeah. That's what I've always heard is, is that Mr. DeRosa was, I mean, nobody could focus like that. Nope. Nope. It's true. It's true. So I, I, I learned a lot, you know, from that man. And I still learn every time I listen. And thank God he's still with us. Yeah. It's amazing. He just had a birthday, right? hundred. <laughs> hundred years old. Yeah. To think about it too. I mean, it's like, I bet the pension fund is like, man, this guy, of course, <laughs> the, guy, the guy with the biggest... <laughs> the guy with the biggest pension is living to a hundred years old. <laughs> <laughs> I can broke to him out. <laughs>
so man. Oh, I mean, yeah, so many, so many great memories. I, I'll, I'll just share a quick one with you. I was sitting next to him when we were recording Rocky Five, and um, you know, of course, he's so famous for these Rocky solos. I mean, the the big one I know that went around on the internet during his like October, which is when he turned a hundred, was they kept playing the Mickey theme from Rocky Three. That's the right. big solo when Mickey dies, right? And it's it's all Vince. Well, he had that to do again in Rocky Five because it was a flashback scene with Mickey. So they they redid that whole thing. And uh, so the orchestra's recording and, and they play through it once and Bill Conti's on the podium. He says, okay, everybody else, let's record. Vince, I want you to sit out. We're going we're gonna to overdub you after this is over with. You know, we'll record you separately. So, okay, fine. So the orchestra takes him a half hour to get this right. You know, somebody dropping a bow or, you know, making a noise or some something happened. I mean, there's just stuff that happens. And finally, a half hour later, it's it's time to take a break. And Connie says, okay, everybody just sit tight. Vince, let's do your part. So there's 90 people sitting there in the room, of course, waiting for a break to happen. You know, going, hey, Vince, I got to pee. Let's go. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. Right, right. I'm, I, I'm not sure I should say that on the board. But anyway. Oh, just like it. Um, so he nails it in one take. Just nails it. And I could feel that focus sitting next to him. It was just unbelievable. And the orchestra is just clapping and clapping and clapping and clapping. And he turns to me and he says something to me that he had never said before. He gave away his age. He turned to me and he said, you know, today's my 70th birthday. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel very blessed. Yeah. I feel extremely blessed to have been exposed to a lot of the people that I've been exposed to. Yeah. Uh, incredible. I know that you played in the studios. I know that you started out playing orchestrally. When, where did jazz come from? Like, when did you have the time so that by the time you're in your late 20s, early 30s, you're putting out albums? Well, I, I think, honestly, Chris, I think that that stemmed, I think it stemmed from really my uh, love for rock and roll. I was, I, I played piano before I played the horn. And when I was in high school and early college years, I played keyboards in a rock and roll band. So I was already starting to kind of do improvisational things with keyboards, but it wasn't as deep as I would like it to have been. And I, when I was in college, I started listening to Oscar Peterson and Art Tatum and Count Basie and Frank Sinatra and, you know, Clark Terry and all these great jazz of the Philharmonic stuff, all, all of these amazing artists. And, you know, I thought, this is cool. I, I want to, I want to learn how to do this. And so I tried to improvise, but it, for me, it wasn't about learning how to improvise right away. I wanted to understand the language of jazz, you know, the dialect, because it's the same notes on the page as classical music. They're just approached in a different manner. And it's like the letters in our alphabet. Those same letters are used by God knows how many countries and different languages around the world. And all the letters sound different. Right. in different parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So there's a rhyme or reason to like, you know, I, I, I want to learn how to play the way Danny Plater's playing or Mel Wanzo's playing in Count Basie's band. So I'm going to sit there and I'm going to listen 
And I'm going to see if I can just play along and try to get all of the nuance of what they're doing, the way that they're articulating things, the way that they ghost notes. I feel like if I didn't understand that first, it's like putting the roof on your house before you've got the foundation built. Right, right. You know? And so I I spent that time really just listening and repeating, listening and repeating, listening and repeating. And it was when I got to New Orleans where I said, okay, now I'm in New Orleans, right? I'd be stupid if I didn't try to find a jazz teacher. Right. When yeah. I was here. I did that just be like really dumb of me. Um, not because I saw anything down the road. It was like, I need to learn this. I'm, I'm in the Mecca here. Mm-hmm. And so I asked around a number of different people who should I, you know, ask to take lessons from. And the same name came back every single time. And that name was Ellis Marcellus. <laughs> so Ellis Marcellus became my jazz teacher. No way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It doesn't get a whole lot better than that. I mean, his kids. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And you know what? My lessons with him were great because I, I went over to his house and I took a couple of lessons and I'm not sure he understood what it was that I wanted to do. Cause he had me sit at the piano and I proved to him very quickly that I wasn't a pianist. And um, you know, I said, I, I really, I want to get my horn out and I want to play that with you. It's Oh, okay. So I got my horn and I played with him and probably after about, you know, 20 minutes or so he stopped. He says, okay, there's two types of players that I teach those who can play and those that can't. He said, you can play. So your lessons are going to be, you're going to come over to the Hyatt Regency where I work. He had a gig from five to nine every day in the, in the atrium of the Hyatt Regency in downtown New Orleans. And you're going to come in and you're going to play with me. Oh, cool. That's it. And that's it. And they became lessons because trust me, you know, we'd play tunes. And if I completely got lost, he would stop playing (laughs) and he wouldn't let me get out of it. You know, it's like, he's just stop. If there were people around, he'd just stop saying, why'd you do that? You know, what were you thinking? You know, and it was really a great, great education. Well, I mean, like you said, once again, I mean, sometimes the best education is is when you're kind of thrown into the fire or when you're sitting next to your teacher on a job. And it sounds like now two of your teachers, you were learning by playing with them, not yep. just sitting in a room next to them, hearing what they had to say. Yeah, that's right. Wow. And uh, there was also a, a scene where fortunately there was a big jazz room at the High Regency and big names would come in and do a week at a time. And so uh, I said, Hey, Mr. Marcellus, would you mind introducing me to some of these people, et cetera. And and so he did that. And as a result, I got to actually play alongside of Clark Terry (laughs) in, in that room. And, you know, and I played with him, sat in on a tune or two and he said, Hey, you know, I'm here the rest of the week, come down anytime you want. So here's this 22 year old, you know, white French horn player, you know, <laughs> some from, from God knows where, standing next to the great Clark Terry on the bandstand. And he turns to me and he says, do you know the Flintstones? Which is basically his, that was like one of his signature tunes. Uh-huh. So I got to play the Flintstones with Clark Terry. I got to share a <laughs> shout chorus with Clark Terry. 
<laughs> you know, there's no way to explain it. It just. Yeah, that's too cool, man. Clark Terry, what an amazing player. You mm-hmm. didn't get to play mumbles with him, did you? No, I didn't play mumbles, <laughs> but Flintstones was good enough. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. You mentioned a uh, horn player. God knows where from. Where are you from? I'm actually, uh, well, I was born in the state of Oregon in the city of Salem, but uh, for the most part, I grew up in Southern California. Oh, okay. So you were always kind of around that, that area. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in Orange County, which was at that particular time, you know, there was still farmland, believe it or not. In Southern <laughs> California, there was still farmland. There were orange groves as far as the eye could see. There was electricity and stuff. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> so what got you into playing the horn? Like, why did you choose the horn? I have to say that um, I started on piano when I was four. And when I was eight, I was getting bored of playing the piano and I wanted to play something else. And I have to say that my mother, who was a, a, a pianist, a classical pianist, and my stepfather, who was a music educator, Basically, you know, they okayed the switch and they basically said, here are the instruments that you can choose from. And for real, uh, they, they gave me my choice of any string instrument I wanted, double reeds or the horn. That was it. <laughs> they wanted me to choose an instrument that I might actually have a chance in, in having a career with. Right. That's smart. You know? And I really kind of didn't I was I was really short when I was a kid and I was really kind of like uh let's just say I hadn't grown into my weight yet (laughs) okay and you know I had very nerdy glasses at the time and the 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 fear of being an eight-year-old boy walking to school with a violin case in my hand um, in the 1960s, I think was just more than I could bear. You know, I mean, you know, I, I would have been the guy that got picked on every day, uh-huh. you know, for carrying around a violin case and, and double reads to me. I, I literally chose the horn because it seemed to be the most manly man instrument of the bunch. Okay. Okay. So did it come to you uh, naturally at all? I mean, were you able to like get around on it? Okay. Earwise, I'm sure um, piano training really helped. Well, you know, if, if you were to talk to my mother, she would probably tell all kinds of, you know, all, all kinds of proud motherly, you know, lies about, you know, their brilliant child or whatever. But, but apparently, I was um, able to like sing notes on the piano. She kind of checked that out when I was starting around two or something like that. So. I, it seemed as if, and and I could hear, like I could sing back whatever she was playing. So it just kind of seemed like one of these things where the horn, because I was able to hear things already, that the horn was not as ginormous a challenge right? for me in terms of just like hearing notes, which is, I think, such a, such a great challenge for you know, for a lot of people, even deep into their development, sometimes they'll have a hard time hearing the wrong partial. Right. So I guess you could say, yeah, all right. Was it difficult? It never seemed that way. And I think part of it was because I never had a teacher that ever said that it was. Yeah. 
So to be perfectly honest with you, I'm not sure I thought that deeply about it. It was just, I just picked the instrument up and just started playing whatever it was it was. I, I can tell you this, that, that when I was 12 years old, I performed the second movement of the Mozart third concerto with a local junior high school band. Uh-huh. And, you know, there's a picture of me in the paper, this, this, you know, small, again, I said, I haven't grown into my weight yet. This very young, you know, kid wearing these bookish nerdy glasses and I'm wearing a white jacket and a bow tie and all this. And, you know, the horn's half my size. And I'm shaking hands with the conductor. There. And and this was in the paper. And I listened. And I finally, my mom actually had kept the recording. And I listened to it. And I just thought, oh, my God, this is just awful. Just awful. Um, but I suppose you have to take it into perspective yeah. in terms of where you were and how you were developing. And Well, 12 years old, that's, I mean... It's funny because whenever students tell me that they're having a hard time, younger kids, they'll email me or they'll message me on social media and they'll say, I'm having a hard time playing the instrument. I love how it sounds, but I just can't get the hang of it. And I'm, I just have to remind them that with the horn, you, you have to listen a lot and you have to just give it time. You just don't see like a six-year-old horn virtuosos playing, you know, like you do with the violinists and the pianists. And it's like, even 12 years old, there's rarely like really good sounding 12-year-old. And so you just have to give it time. Well, uh, there's, there's a, I completely agree with you. There's a big difference, I think, between instruments that rely upon manual dexterity. And that comes so much quicker. Than, than anything else. And young kids can become virtuosi on manual dexterity type of instruments. Um, I think the, the more demand, the more physical demand that an instrument has, it, it, your body just has to grow into it. You know, our, our bodies have to grow to a certain place and mature to a certain place. There's always going to be the one-off phenom, no matter what. Sure. But for the most of us, you know, it, we we have to look at ourselves akin to like being opera singers. You know, the older we get, the more we grow into it. And yes, by we get there quicker than opera singers do. They take some years after us to finally get to a maturity place. You know, otherwise there wouldn't be people like John Chermanar, who was principal horn of New York when he was what nineteen, right, yeah. or something. But there is that place. There's there, you know, very few people. Gunther Schuller was principal horn in Cincinnati when he was 17. Arthur Burve was principal horn in Cleveland when he was 16. But those are unique individuals. For the most part, it comes to us at a later time because of all the complexities of building our air and just our bodies maturing to a certain degree. At least that's what I think. I think you're right, man. So before I move on to the next topic that I wanted to ask you about, I want to, uh, since we had talked about your recording and, and movie stuff, uh, do you have any favorite moments, like favorite soundtracks you've been on? I mean, I know that there's been a couple thousand of them. So, I mean, it's got to be a little bit hard to recall something, but I mean, there, I'm sure that there's that one thing or two things that really stick out. Uh, I think for me, some of it is... Uh, like memories of the first time that I worked with legendary composers. I mean, the first John Williams score I played on was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. 
And uh, I remember Bill Lane was principal for that, who was formerly principal of uh, L.A. Phil. Jim Decker was in the section. Uh, I don't really remember who else. I think maybe Robin Graham might have been there. Um, Beyond that, I don't remember. But just the idea that I'm on a John Williams movie and it was that score, which was, I mean, it was that score had insanely wonderful orchestral writing in it. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you know, you could say that about pretty much most everything he wrote after that. But going back before John Williams to have been able to play on film scores by Miklos Rosa, Mm. who won the Academy Award for Ben-Hur, you know, Alex North, who wrote incredible scores for things like Cleopatra. You know, I, I was able to, I caught that tail end of those great older generational composers. I caught the tail end of the great older generational players, mm-hmm. you know, you know, the brass players, um, the older generational guys. Uh, it was amazing to walk in and be able to sit. And so I'm sitting with, pl- I'm playing with like Lloyd Olliate and Dick Nash and George Roberts in the trombone section. And there's Graham Young and, you know, Phil and Yuan Racy. Yuan uh, Racy, the trumpet player, most famous solo that he ever did was the opening trumpet solo in Chinatown. If you haven't heard that, that's about as great as a as a sound on the trumpet you'd ever want to hear. Right. So it's it's hard. I know you asked for like one or two things, but I haven't really thought of it from like a particular score. I've I've really looked at it from a, a place of what legacy have I been able to be a part of and, you know, how fortunate I was to have been part of that group of people that, that bridged the gap with the composers, you understand? With those guys, Alice North, Miklos Rosa, uh, Georges Delarue, um, Elmer Bernstein, all of those people who were writing before John Williams and Jerry Goldsmith who to me were the two real major cats in my career, other than Michael Giacchino. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to be a part of a certain generation of composers that started. James Horner started when I was, you know, when I was already working. Uh, James Newton Howard. Um, Alan Silvestri was doing TV. His first major film was uh, Back to the Future, and I got to play on that. You know, I mean, I, I, so for me, it's like, do I look at a film score? Do I look at what is the totality of the history that I've been fortunate enough to be a part of? Yeah. I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to work with Jeremy Lubbock and, and uh, Johnny Mandel and, you know, some of the great arrangers, record arrangers, Billy May, Billy Byers, just like legends of the old school. But if I had to choose scores, I mean, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom would be one, certainly. Mm-hmm. Pretty much anything that Michael Giacchino ever wrote. Of course, you know, I got a little bit of notoriety because he did three films under the old Star Trek machine. And that's me playing the opening solo in those films. Right. And uh, which is really cool because it's one of the first times in a long time that there had been like a, a new major theme out for a uh, Star Trek. 
And it worked. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It's really cool. And just that opening horn line that you play, it's just so beautiful and haunting and like, and it's like, there are things to come, you know, and it's right. so cool sounding. Uh, right. Yeah. I, I, I have to say, if I had to put, if I had to throw something else in there, uh, it might be uh, the end credits of Independence Day. Oh, cool. Independence Day. That's some really cool music. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that end credits is, that's a major, that's seriously major. But again, <laughs> you're asking me to like yeah. pick out a couple. I can't. I really yeah. can't. And I figured you'd have a hard time because there's been so much, but I really like how you were talking about um, the older back in the day composers, because when you really listen, it was a different kind of writing back then. It was more like symphonic, more orchestral, just you'd have like a horn section of four or six or, or more horn players. And they were doing all kinds of different stuff. And it seems like nowadays, like there's a lot of unison and, and solely sections and stuff, but it's not so much like uh, like John Williams would have written or like a Ben Hur soundtrack or, or something like that, you know. Well, I will tell you that that um, I'll refer again to Independence Day. There were ten horns on that, and um, I can tell you that David Arnold was the composer. Uh, but um, oh, this is this is terrible. I'm going to forget his last name, Nicholas Dodd. Uh, was the orchestrator and and he wrote independently for the 10 horns in there there were times when different people in the section were doing different things and and it was just like busy and you know you you couldn't hide you had to do it i i think the biggest change and you're absolutely right if i could go back to the older generation the, the the people when you think of the great writers in Hollywood history, you know, you think Bernard Herrmann, Max Steiner, Victor Young, uh, Bronislav Kaper. There are just so many, so many. Alfred Newman, David Raxon. These people would write in such a way that you could tell their European training backgrounds mm-hmm. because their writing was was more kind of not always directed to supporting the music. It was something that would be underneath the film and so on, but it would have a voice of its own. One of the bigger changes I think came when it was decided that the music needed to really like more support a little bit more like, like Wagner in the oh. ring cycle. Like there were, you started to recognize motifs. Williams was brilliant at that. Oh, yeah. Has always been brilliant at that. At You hear five or six notes, and you know which character those five or six notes represent. Yep. And if, if that isn't Wagner, I don't know what is. Yeah, and it seems like more recently, uh, Giacchino is doing a lot of that, too. He uh, is. He is. I mean, you know, I, I love his, his approach to respecting the old mm-hmm. while doing the new. And um, I'm glad I got to be a part of all of that greatness for as long as I was. And I think about five years ago, I decided, you know what, I, I'm done. I don't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. And because I feel like I'd seen the best of it. And it was to the point for me where it's time to do something else. Well, not only that, but you're teaching on the other side of the country. <laughs> so well, there's that. It's got to be hard but, to uh, be doing the uh, East Coast, West Coast, East Coast, West Coast thing. 
it, it was it was fun for a while, and after that, it stopped being fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, what was your first teaching job? Well, my first teaching job was at a little place called Occidental College, a little private liberal arts college, very highly respected, um, and it's in Eagle Rock, California, which is one of the suburbs of LA. And I had one or two students. You know, I started there, and um, after that. Um, I got the chance to teach at UCLA. So I taught at UCLA for about, I don't know, 10, 12 years. And um, the studio started with one person. And by the time I was done, it had 11 or 12, which was a little concerning for the music department there because once I got to 10, they actually had to start paying me benefits and stuff. And, you know, they weren't... (laughs) It was not something they were planning on doing, but by that point, I was already, I was starting to kind of volunteer once in a while at my alma mater, which was USC. And the teachers when I was at USC uh, were Vince Rosa, Jim Decker, uh, Wally Linder, and I failed to mention one name who was still teaching at USC when I was a freshman, Wendell Haas Oh, was still there. So, um, you know, that was the magic time for me. And so uh, I started in like helping Jim Decker with the master class. And then Jim decided that he wanted to not do the master class anymore. So I took over the master class and then Jim retired and I became, I started off as like the third teacher. And then I became the second teacher with Vince, which was the greatest thrill of my life that I was on the faculty with my teacher. <laughs> yeah. It just doesn't get any better than that. And then I became the primary only because Vince decided that he only wanted six. So I took the other 14 plus, which had jacked up from about, you know, we went from about 14 to 20. At the peak of my teaching there, we were at 24. Wow. And, and, and it wasn't because we wanted 24. Here's, this is a bizarre thing, Chris, is it at most schools, you know, cause you teach. Mm-hmm. And, and most universities don't actually allow a waiting list for undergraduates. They do it for grad students, but not for incoming freshmen. So, you know, the, the, the natural, you know, the standard thing that we were told was take twice as many as you actually want, because you're lucky if you get a 50% retention rate. Well, when Vince and I were there, we never got less than 75%. So we ended up with with 24 students. I mean, I have a number of ensemble pieces that were written for us uh, because I I started, uh, I mean, we already had a horn ensemble at school, but I started a a Vince Rosa scholarship concert every year because I wanted to make sure that there was something in his name when he retired because universities are fabulous with memory lapses. Yeah. Really yeah, forgetting things. And it was just, I, I needed to try to do this. And so I started this concert every year where I got film composers to write brand new horn ensemble literature for our, our ensemble. That's awesome. And, and so like, you know, I had people like John Debney, I had people like Elmer Bernstein, Michael Giacchino became our composer in residence. He wrote something for us every year. Hmm. His orchestrator, Tim Simonek did. And Randy Newman, even wrote a song for Vince. No way. That, that he came at Vince's retirement concert. He came and performed it with my 20 students 
and I think a tuba. And it, he performed a song with us. He sang the song? Yeah, he sang it with us on stage. Oh, my gosh, man. Yeah, he sat at the piano and he played. And, and There's got to be recordings of this stuff somewhere. Yeah, I've got them. Oh my gosh! You have to put that stuff up, man. You can't. Hold it. Yeah, eventually I will. I, I have to figure out where they are. I have all the repertoire. I mean, that's one of the things I think I was most proud of. It's like we got a good twenty or thirty or forty terrific pieces from composers in that form that that wrote horn ensemble music. Is and, there that stuff available, or, or can you find any of it, or is do you have it and it's at the school or something? Or? Well, I've got it in Miami. You know, I grabbed it all when I left USC. You know, I think they have some of it. I don't even know if they use it or do if they do anything with it at all. But, you know, I certainly got it all on disc. Yeah. And um, when I got the Frost, uh, we just reprinted everything. So there you have that. I know that you're at the Frost School now. You've been there since, uh, what, 2009? Or yeah. So 10 or 11 years. That school is super innovative and one of my great friends and colleagues and mentors, uh, Sam Palafian, uh, he was, he was there all the time. He was just always talking about how innovative the faculty was there. And he would talk about you and he'd talk about Shelly and he'd talk about, uh, people like Valerie Coleman, who's on fire. And, and it's just like, it's just really cool. Maria like, Schneider. Yeah. Maria yeah. Schneider. Gerard Schwartz is now our symphony conductor. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable. I mean, so that the school for people who are looking to go to a music school, you can't really beat the faculty there. And then there's the weather. <laughs> so, well, there's that, you know, I, I had to make sure that I got back this afternoon. I spent the afternoon with my wife at the beach. I had to make sure that I got back in time for this podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. I took you away from the beach. Dang. No, no, it's okay. It gets dark down here now. So it's, it's fine. <laughs> Thank you for that observation. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that I, I didn't even know about this job. I didn't even know about this school. And I think that's one of the great unfortunate things yet that we're still not on like the big time radar that a lot of other schools are, and it needs to get there. Um, but I, I remember getting a, an email from Shelly Berg. The dean, when I was like still living in Los Angeles, says, "Hey, would you like to come down and do a master class or something?" And you know, it's like I sent him an email going, "Hey, what, 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 are you, what are you doing in Miami?" Because I knew him as the head of the jazz department at USC. You know, he was a great pianist, right? And he said, "Well, I'm I'm the dean here now." It's like, what? You know, <laughs> all right, cool. So I don't know. A few months go by, and I get another email. Hey, you know. You're thinking about doing this. We'd love to have you come. And so at the end of the day, what ended up happening was I finally got an email from the head of the search committee. And the search committee basically just said, we had a search. And before we make our choice, the dean has asked us to reach out to you and see whether or not you would be willing to come down for a couple of days and interview for the job. Mm -hmm. And Literally, Chris, the first thing that came to mind was I've never been to Miami. If somebody wants to give me an all expenses paid trip to Miami for a couple of days, <laughs> I'm in. I'm seriously, I had been thinking for a while about 
is it time to start doing something else? I mean, that that had been kind of in my psyche for a while. Like if something, if a new great opportunity came along, would I be willing to kind of scuttle what I was doing? Because at that point, I felt like, what else is there to do? You know, yeah. what 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 else is there left to do that I that I haven't already done in L.A.? So I flew to Miami and I thought, great, I'll be able to go see Miami. Well, I didn't see squat of Miami. I saw the inside of meeting rooms and, and, you know, uh, rehearsal halls and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But I walked away 48 hours later, just being completely blown away by what I had just seen. Mm -hmm. You have to remember, you know, you asked me where I taught the place that I left out was I taught for a year and a half in Indiana uh, for Myron Bloom. Oh, okay. uh, he had done sabbatical and had taken a medical leave. And so I taught for him for a year and a half there. And what I saw at Frost was unlike anything I'd ever seen anywhere. And exactly what you were talking about, the, the innovative thinking, they get it. They get the profession of the music world. And I just felt like this place speaks to me unlike anything else that I've ever seen. And I got back to L.A. and I got an email from the dean the next morning saying, "Okay, you want the job. (laughs) And so I have been here since 2009. And this is my last job. I can't ever imagine being in a place that is more spectacular than what this place is doing. Yeah. And you guys have a brand new music building over there, right? It's a teaching. There are all the teaching studios. Yeah, teaching studios are brand new. Yeah, they're great. I, but I have to say that that I I haven't used it at all this semester because of COVID. Oh. I've been I've been teaching all of my lessons outside, like as in outdoors. As in outdoors. Oh, that's pretty cool. Well, it, it, it's you know these are tough times that we're living in, and and these are questionable times. I mean, it, it I think it makes a lot of people very. Um, skittish about like what is to happen in the future. And I don't mean to change the subject too much, but sure. But I, I think that, yeah, teaching outside is my way of keeping my family safe. Right. You know, that nobody gets in my studio, but me. Mm-hmm. And um, in an odd sort of way, they put up a big, big canopy for me, like the size that you could have like a social event under. Oh, cool. Um, and that became my teaching studio. And, you know, what's actually been kind of cool about it for my students is it's gotten them over the fear of anybody else hearing them while they play. Mm, okay. Yeah. Well, so there's, there's been some real, you know, pluses that have come out of this. Um, but I think the fear that all of us have, you know, about what, what is the future of what there is out there. I, I think you and I, I think, can both agree that there is nothing that is a universal statement of joy as music is. And it will be back. Um, It will be back in ways, perhaps not what we have been used to seeing before, but it will be back in big time ways. And one of the things that I think that Frost does so well is they teach you how to be an entrepreneur they teach you how to create opportunities for yourself, not just learn excerpts. You know, I mean, you'll learn excerpts with if you're in my studio. Believe me, you'll learn them. But you're going to learn other things, too. You're going to be encouraged to create yep. and uh, taught how to create. 
And I think that is probably maybe one of the most valuable things that a school can do in this new age that we are kind of finding ourselves in. I really feel like what this whole pandemic has done is people were being super slow about opening up their eyes to what was popular, what needs to be changed in not music or anything, but just the presentation of music maybe. Right. And how to get audiences interested. And a lot of organizations were just kind of clinging on to old ideas, which now it's like supercharged the way that those aren't working. Well, if, if I can offer an observation of, you know, in my lifetime, one of the, one of the big metamorphoses that I've seen, um, actually you're kind of part of it, Chris, because when I was in school, major chamber music series around the United States were basically, and before me too, were, were purely nothing more than string quartets, piano trios, and occasional sonatas. You know, like a, a big time, a name violinist or a name cellist with a name pianist would get on the, the chamber music tours and they would play stuff. I mean, this is all, you know, basically generated by the um, music impresario through the 40s, through the 60s. A gentleman by the name of Saul Hirock, um was the main guy who, who was managing everybody um, and presenting concerts. So, you know, there was this older generation of people that if, if you weren't a string quartet, if you weren't a, a piano trio, if you weren't a sonata or soloist piano or something like that, you weren't going to get booked. And occasionally there might have been a woodwind quintet, et cetera, uh, get booked, but certainly brass, no way. And, and I, I experienced some of that, you know, when I was in school, because I was in a brass quintet and we were like serious and I would never say that we were professional quality, but like one of the members of the brass quintet besides me is a guy named Larry Zalkind. Yeah. Who is who is uh, who was principal in Utah for thirty years or whatever is now is a trombone professor at at Eastman, having taken over from John Marsalis. But we went to uh, one of the big chamber music competitions in nineteen seventy six, I think, or seventy five. I don't remember in Pasadena called the Coleman Competition, and we were up against string quartets and piano trios and et cetera, et cetera. And it wasn't like separate categories you know now they've got strings or winds or whatever it was like they had a junior division and a senior division right and we went in and we got second place wow and we were the first brass group in the history of coleman 30 years in to to actually win a prize and the first prize went to a woodwind quintet Mm. so you know i i've seen it i've seen this sea change of what has happened in the chamber music world. And, and, you know, yes, the Boston brass is a traditional instrumentative brass quintet, but you guys are, are doing terrific things. Everybody is a great virtuoso on their instruments. And, you know, you're bringing a show to the audience, not just like sitting there playing, you're doing what needs to be done. And that's the biggest change that I've seen in classical music over the last 40 years is how chamber music is being presented. Yeah, it's hard to sell a recital, which is what a, a lot of people want to do. And it, you know, it has to be more than just um, sitting down in a horseshoe and playing great. 
You know, you you have to be able to talk to an audience. You have to maybe play something that you might not take seriously, but if the arrangement is such, then it can be still great music. Well, look, what you learn in the studio world is you better take everything seriously. Yeah, exactly. You know, because it's got to sound right. Period. It's got to sound right. That doesn't mean that you can't have fun with it, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, when I say the sea change, it's like, you know, Boston Brass is a, if you'll pardon the expression, a traditional ensemble mm-hmm. from the fact that it has, it, it's a traditional brass quintet right. and, and it's, it's terrific. But what you're seeing beyond that in the last 30 years has been, you know, ensembles of instrumentation that has never been put together before. Mm-hmm. And, and they're creating this, this wonderful, wonderful amalgam of, of styles and, and things that, like all of the barriers in that regard have really been broken down, you know? So this, this, we are in an, in an era that I think you and your colleagues are really kind of in the forefront of, I mean, I check out kind of the stuff you do on YouTube and and so on. You're doing some terrific things, man. And um, this is the path going forward. There will be orchestras. The Met will return. The New York Philharmonic will return. This is the path forward. But if there's ever been a time in our life where it is important to really understand how to promote yourself, how to market yourself, how to create new pathways of thinking, this is the time. You know, I, I'm so happy to be in a place like Frost, which not only gets it and encourages it, but also teaches it. Exactly. My favorite thing about a school like yours is that you're teaching musicians to be musicians, but you're also teaching musicians. Well, they have to learn business now too. I mean, they're teaching. Yes. I'm teaching musicians how to be business people too. Yeah. It's not as simple as, you know, going and getting a job and your second horn in an orchestra for 40 years and, and that's it. I mean, you have to be able to you know, be your own business manager, your own uh, brand manager, your own, it's just all these things that weren't around before. And it's important that schools understand that they need to teach that kind of thing too. I think it's also important that they teach the history of the union and they, they teach the, the, the importance of, you know, the, the musicians union, uh, whatever sort of you know financial state and so on and so forth that it's in, they need to understand what the idea of uh, of of bargaining is, and and you know that's part of the business thing. Am I like a huge like union guy, et cetera, et cetera? I believe in I believe in what unionism is, and I believe that that, that musicians are very much prone to kind of take whatever they're offered and not necessarily bargain for what their true worth really is. And and that's part of the world that you've got to learn how to do because, you know, you get hired for a job, you're you're up against people who like, that's their, that's their job is to figure out how little they can pay you. (laughs) And your, your job is to figure out how much you can get from them. That's where a, a little term called a collective bargaining agreement comes into play. Well, that's what's scary about things like Spotify and stuff now. And it's just, I mean, it used to be that take uh, Empire Brass, for example. And back in the day, they would have a, a record deal. There was a way to actually make money from making albums. 
And now it's just, you're just basically making a business card because as soon as you put it out somewhere and it goes on Spotify, you're getting, you know, 0.00001 cent per play. And it's right. like, you'll never get anything. Right. And, and musicians have kind of done that to themselves almost by bowing down to Spotify saying, hey, we'll get you out here, but you know, you ain't going to get any money from it. It's like, well, people know who I am and they heard me play. It's like, great. uh, That and three bucks will get you a latte at Starbucks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we have to be careful. I mean, and that's another thing. It's, it's really cool. All the stuff that's happening right now, like you were saying, people are figuring out uh, how to multi-track and and people are figuring out all this stuff and having a good time doing it. But I also have to be careful that you realize how to monetize that kind of thing too. You don't want to give away everything that you create. Right. Which brings me to my only shameless plug Mm -hmm. of the evening, if you will. All right. Um, A lot of the things that you and I have talked about during this time in terms of playing and thought process and et cetera, et cetera, I've actually organized into a video series called The Art of Practicing. And um, it's on my website. You can see it, richardtoddmusic.com. You can see it there. It shows you all the different chapters and so on and so forth. Uh, I think there's 16 different chapters. Each one has a title that is of value, um, I think, in some way, shape, or form. The subtitle is the fascinating part because it's it's how to be an analog thinker in a digital world. Mm, I like that. And the interesting thing is, is that, Chris, there's a lot of people younger than you that don't know what the word analog means. <laughs> now that's scary, man. It is scary, but this is what, see, this is what, 35 years of observing students and teaching and seeing the development of the world around us and how that's impacted the students that I've come in contact with. Um, And I I speak about it because it's for sale through my website. If you go there, you can actually see it. You can see the introductory chapter and then you can see everything is laid out in front of you. And yeah, I mean, I don't just throw that out there. I could easily toss it out on Facebook or whatever, but it's gone. The second that actually goes out there, it's gone. Meanwhile, I've got what a few people might consider to be like, you know, almost immeasurably valuable information that I have on a platform that, that you can purchase it and you can get all of it, or you can purchase it chapter by chapter and it goes through a platform that actually holds the information. So you you get a code that you can access it from there, but it's not something that you download yourself and you get to keep and therefore share with people. Right. I, I can tell you that I, I can't highly recommend this enough for younger players because I talk about what I call the four R's of success, research, repetition, retention, and result. I talk about the element of what is a warm-up which you and I were talking about at the very beginning of this time. Um, when does a warm-up become routine? When does it become practicing? And how do you really define what a warm-up is? You know, and I remember this is how you and I started off our time tonight. Yep. Um, I talk about um, practice doesn't make perfect, you know, and, and the inability to be able to define what the word perfect means versus the ability to be able to define what a word, say, like better means. Ergo, being more actively involved in what you were about to do on the instrument rather than reacting to what you did. 
and um, other chapters like owning versus renting. I've got one called the spell check syndrome. I talk about Snapchat memory. I talk about like all of these different things. At least please go to my website and check it out. I think it might be a great value to a lot of people out there, but it is part of the professional element that I was talking about, like how is what we were just describing. I'm not giving this away for free. I'm not letting people download it because there goes your revenue stream. And this is what we as professionals can help younger players develop. And this is what we do at Frost. I mean, this is a cumulative 35 years of teaching knowledge and even more than that of professional knowledge uh, from a virtuoso of the horn. I mean, it shouldn't be free. I was having a conversation with a a friend of mine the other day. I I was talking about how because everything is so accessible, and we were talking about how it used to be that when you were in university, the people with the biggest album collections tended to be some of the best musicians that you knew because they were listening all the time, actively listening. Um, They were playing along. They were transcribing all this stuff. And now that all of it is so readily available, People are just kind of like, eh, I'll get to it later. You couldn't be more right. I, I have an orchestra rep class that I teach on Monday nights virtually. And, and I'm, I couldn't agree more, Chris. This class has gone from listening to pieces with, you know, big horn excerpts to we're actually listening to compositions. Mm. And I'm not actually addressing the excerpts per se. For the exact same reason that you're that you're talking about. I mean, you know, I'm old school. Well, I am old enough to like I've got 21 linear feet of LPs, wow. which, I've had, which I've had forever. Yeah. Moving sucks. You know, <laughs> you need a moving truck just for your LPs. Oh, God. Between the wine collection and the, and the LPs, it's it's like I throw my back out. Well, I'll tell you what, if I'm ever going to rob a, a, a truck. I'll make sure it's your moving truck. I'm going to take a, a moving truck full of wine and LPs. That sounds like the best heist ever. <laughs> oh, you you could have, you, you'd you be able to get the the entire Vienna Philharmonic Schulte uh, ring cycle and a great bottle of uh, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild. It, it wouldn't get any better than that. Um, no, but I agree with you. Um, even my own students, I've got wonderful students now, but I think the toughest thing is for them to listen. And this goes, again, to, I hate to kind of, again, be shameless about this, but this is some of the stuff that I talk about in the art of practicing. Because, you know, our students, young people don't realize, and you and I may not always, you know, refer to this on a daily basis, but the instrument that we play is the largest piece of analog thinking there is left in our life. And so for younger players that, that like, you know, if they don't understand this element exactly of what you just said of just sitting and listening, you know, yep. sitting and listening. And we just had a, a, a storm that came through a week ago and we lost internet in our apartment building for three days. And so I got out my record player and I started putting on records to just sit there and listen. I'm, I'm trying to remember when was the last time I did that. Yep. Me too. I actually, this has been a great time. If it's a great time for anything, you know, it, it only took like all my work to go away for me to, 
to be able to, to, uh, you know, appreciate having time with my kids and also time to just like kick back, I'll pour myself a drink and I will listen to something, you know, it's like, when was the last time I did that? I mean, I'll tell you a funny story. It's a little bit embarrassing, but I was in high school and I was so into playing the horn and listening to stuff pre like YouTube and streaming music and all that stuff. So, um, I remember I got a new recording of the concert stuff. It was, uh, I think it was Berlin with Gerd Seifert playing. Great recording of the concert stuff. Oh, yeah. I had that recording. Klaus Tenstedt's conducting that, I think. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And, and so I'm in a practice room at my high school, and this girl wanted to hang out with me. And so she came into the practice room, and she's hanging out. And... I was just such a nerd about the horn. I'm like playing the concert stick for her. And I'm like, oh, listen to that. Listen to this. Now replaying it in my head, I could just see her getting more and more bored with me. You know, it's like, I know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, this guy is just going to listen to his yeah. all day long. I'm going to get out of here. And it's, and that's what happened. She just like took off. So anyway, I bored the crap out of her. But for me, it was like I had a great time like geeking out on my new album. Smooth, Chris. Smooth. Smooth <laughs> <laughs> with the ladies. <laughs> so that's really kind of one of the things that I, I seriously address in this is I use a lot of these terms, like Snapchat memory. Hmm. You know, how much do they remember when they walk out of the studio and how much do they remember when they come back a week later? You yeah. know, and, and this is kind of part of our need to connect with our students in a world that they understand and help them to understand the world that is necessary for them to be in, in order for them to improve as much as they can improve on their instruments. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the ability to quiet down and just listen and, you know, you're not going to get your answers right away. You can't just Google, uh, you know, how to fix your low range got to go back to like feeding that acorn in the ground yes you know? uh, that's so cool what uh tell us again uh where we can find that it's called the art of practicing or how to be an analog thinker in a digital world and it's available on my website which is www.richardtoddmusic.com and it's 49.95 and you can also buy it per chapter if you don't feel like you want to purchase the entire thing But I think if you actually read all of the chapters that are there and, and, uh, I mean, look at the names of all of the chapters and see, just slow down enough to be able to think and take a look at it and go, okay, what in here could actually benefit anything that is causing me a particular problem? I do think there's something in there to help. And this really is based on like a lifetime of my observations. For those of you that think that this is just horn-centric, I think you're sadly mistaken. This is not kind of one of those how-to video series when I talk about, okay, now let's get out Coprosh number nine. And now we're going to go through Coprosh number nine. And now we're going to talk about fingerings and we're going to talk about places to breathe. This is not that. This is something that I think is more universal in nature and how it can help us just become more complete. Yeah. You know, I mean, but lots of people have different words on how they want to describe certain types of things, sound, uh, uh, whatever. The word that keeps coming back to me is complete, not perfect, not anything complete. 
one of my sayings in there is if you think you've got it right, you've got more work to do. Mm -hmm. And you and I know that, but I don't fear about it with each passing generation because I know that they are just as willing as you and I were to be sponges and to absorb the knowledge. There's just so many other facets of their lives that pull at them so quickly that it's hard, a lot harder for them than it was for you. And certainly a lot harder than it was for me to slow down and methodically do the work necessary to put the building blocks into place. I'm telling you, those of us that are old enough to remember doing those DeRosa exercises when we were students of his at school, I swear to you, all of us wanted to take our instruments and just throw them against a wall and stomp on them after two months of playing these exercises because we weren't seeing progress. But I'm telling you, it was coming. It was there. It was happening. Well, amazing program, especially, I mean, for the cost of a lesson. Are you kidding me? It's like, <laughs> man, it's like, why not? Actually, I'm, I'm probably going to pick that up too. Bottom line is you're always learning. You can always learn from people. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are. I got a question for you off topic. If you were not a musician, what would it be that you'd be doing instead? You know, I thought about that. Uh, I thought about that a couple of times. I, I think my two inclinations would be circus trapeze performer and uh, aerial daredevil. <laughs> wow, I can, I've never heard those before. <laughs> yeah, and you'll never hear them again. I'm kidding. I, I might actually want to be a chef. I love what a chef does. A chef creates. And I think it's along the lines of the same thing that we all do, that we do, that you do. You know, our practicing is the learning process. You know, one little other thing that I want to mention about that young people, you know, they get very frustrated with practicing and they, they're terrified of failure. They're terrified of it. And, and we both understand that because what we do is very personal. It's very personal to us. And we put the best of ourselves into it. Um, and young people just are afraid. They're terrified of being wrong. They're, they're terrified of, of not doing what it is that they want to do. And here's the thing. This is where I equate great musicians, great chefs, great scientists. Our goal is to repeat something enough time to know what doesn't work. And with chefs and scientists, it's the same thing. When, when a chef is working on a recipe, he or she is going to be spending an awful lot of time failing to get to the point where they finally have the mix of ingredients correct. And the same thing with scientists. You know, can you imagine how many times that the people that have been working on this COVID virus, this COVID vaccine, how many times they have failed in the process? But their failure is one step closer to success. Not, it's like failure, they got to start over. Everything is one step closer to success. You begin to learn about what doesn't work. Yep. Much about what does work. And for me, the element of creativity in being a chef, I'm not talking about being a cook. I'm talking about being a chef, right. being somebody right. that creates recipes, you know, somebody who knows that they know when they've got a teaspoon of salt, they know what a teaspoon of salt looks like. They can pour it into their hand. Yeah. They don't have to measure. Yep. yep. They don't have to measure. And then they can put it into a teaspoon and it is filled up to the rim without one you know, granule left over. That's experimentation. That's practice. 
It's practice. So I would probably, because I, first of all, I love to eat, you know, um, <laughs> and I, I love pairing great food with great wine. And, you know, I probably would have done that. I probably would have gone into being a chef. Mm. In both cases, we get to enjoy the fruits of our labors. Yeah. There's no substitute for that. Exactly. Well, man, it's it's just been a real joy to talk to you, just to get to know you even better. And thank you so much for coming away from the beach. <laughs> you can come and talk to me for a little bit. Which, which only you can do in Miami this time of year. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, it's 50 degrees here today. So Where are you, man? I'm in Salt Lake. Oh, you're in Salt Lake. Oh, my gosh. I, I never got to play in a Bravanel Hall. No way. Well, you got hired by a Bravanel, though, so I think you're... I did. No, but we, we played in the Tabernacle. No way. Okay. Yeah, that's where our concerts were, in the Tabernacle. And I think I think my one of my big memories of that year was playing the Sansaw Organ Symphony. Ooh. With that organ in that in that room. Did you get to play third on that one? No, I didn't. Uh, okay. uh, uh, Ed Allen did. Oh, okay. Uh, Ed Allen, who went on to be principal in New Zealand, and I think was the lead horn player in all of the Lord of the Rings movies. Mm. Okay. I, well, I, I I wouldn't bet on it, but I think so because I'm sure. I think those scores were were recorded in New Zealand. Okay. Well, so I know you played at the Tabernacle. Did you ever have drinks at the Tabernacle? Oh heavens! You couldn't get a drink when I was there. Really? Yeah. The beer that you could buy was 3.2%. If you actually wanted a mixed drink, you actually had to join what they call the private club, yeah. in which case you would have to pay an entry fee and you'd have to go in and, and every drink that you would order, every cocktail. And I never did it once. So everything that I, everything that, that I'm telling you is, is stuff that I was told um, that you actually had to pay a membership fee wasn't much no it's like five bucks yeah something like that but you had to go in and you had to buy your airplane size libation that you wanted and then purchase your mixer to go with it separately and then you mixed it yourself oh man when i first moved here i moved here from vegas and vegas i mean i it's like i was playing shows and i would go to the bar after the show and and you know they wouldn't stop pouring and it's like i got here and I remember I asked for a gin and tonic and I asked for a double and they were like, yeah, you can't get a double. You can get a single and you can ask for a shop for your friend <laughs> and then pour it into your drink. <laughs> so oh, there, wow. are ways, there are ways around it, you know, but it's funny. I'll leave you with a couple small stories, uh, a Vegas story. Oh, cool. Um, for about 20 years, I played principal horn for Barbara Streisand. Mm. And she did her coming out of retirement concerts or comeback concerts were in Vegas. And uh, this was New Year's Eve, 1993, New Year's Day, 1994, those two days. Um, And we rehearsed for a week uh, in LA and then moved to Vegas for a week and rehearsed there for a week. And it was the week that uh, the MGM Grand opened. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, everything, that's good and evil about Las Vegas. I got to see all, ex- except for, of course, the dead bodies in the desert. But, um, you know, I got to see how the system worked because the MGM Graham was not ready. They weren't ready <laughs> to open. Yeah. And, you know, Streisand was going to be singing in the 15,000 seat, you know, arena. Yeah, the Grand now, Garden. The Grand Garden. Now, here's the cool part. Sinatra 
was singing in the 3000 seat theater or whatever at the same time. No way. Yeah. And, and so we were there for a week and, you know, I, we were checked into rooms that, you know, some rooms in that like beds, some rooms in the, they just weren't ready, but, and the system was insane. If you wanted room service, it was four hour wait, unless you said, but I'm with Streisand and then you got it in 20 minutes. Nice. I learned all about that system. So I got to hang with everybody in the Sinatra band at the bars and the, you know, in the casino. And it was a wonderful, wonderful time, but trying to get anything in that town without knowing somebody is almost impossible. Yep. (laughs) You're exactly right, man. My one last little story about Utah. One of the greatest things I remember about Utah was uh, when Abravanel was leading the orchestra, we would rehearse from 8.45 to 11.15. And I had I would have my car packed, and I would be up on the slopes at Alta by 12.30, and I'd ski a half day at Alta for $4. Oh, not anymore, baby. <laughs> <laughs> that, that definitely shows my age. <laughs> oh, that's so cool, man. We've been going for an hour and a half and uh, thank you so much for taking the time with me. I know that the audience is appreciative. If anybody here is looking for a school, uh, <laughs> you're not going to do better in Frost. <laughs> you got to check it out. Go to the campus, check out the people who are teaching there and weigh it against what it is that you want with your career. I think that you'll find this is a place that is really worth your time. Well, thank you. And before we sign off, I got to toss something back at you. Um, I appreciate the fact that that you're having me on. It means a great deal for me. And I want everybody out there to kind of acknowledge from my perspective that this gentleman who I'm sitting here talking to is really a unique artist on the instrument. And I just, I'm a big fan of this guy. And he's just, he's an awesome player. And he gets it. Not everybody gets it. You can you can be a wonderful player and completely not get it. But Chris Castellanos gets it. And I am happy to see that the future of horn playing is in the hands of people like him. Because I think it's just going to make our music world a better place. And good on you, man. Well, I really appreciate that, man. Coming from you, that's amazing. So thank you so much. Cheers again. And be talking to you later. All right. Goodbye, everybody. All right. Bye.